Get ready to enjoy an earful of auditory indulgence as you explore Tom Moon's book, 1,000 Recordings to Hear Before You Die, presented in cooperation with Workman Publishing. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the 1,000 Recordings podcast, episode number 15. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman, and with me, as always, every week, is the jolly Mitchell Davis. Yeah. How's it going? What's up, man? Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you too, dude. Happy holidays, everybody. Uh, good to be on number 15. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, we're recording this on New Year's Eve day on uh, uh, 2011. And, uh, yeah, New Year's man. Eve. New Year's Eve or Christmas Eve? <laughs> did I say New Year's Eve? Yeah, you did. <laughs> Christmas Eve. Sorry. Yeah. Chris, Christmas Eve day. Wow. Um, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Christmas Eve day. And um, we've got a big show today, uh, a daunting one for both Mitch and myself. Uh, you know, last time we were we ended with the three Beatles albums. And this week we're going to conclude the Beatles albums from Tom Moon's book. And these albums are some huge albums. Uh, they were intimidating to say the least to uh, try to get together uh, the information for the show and you know just try to determine what to talk about and what not to talk about and uh, make it concise <laughs> you know I mean as you said Mitch before we start recording you know we could do one entire show easily on the White Album alone yeah, and it's probably Sergeant Pepper's too. I mean, you know, it was just initially, you know, I was excited, and then I got to thinking, you know, do we have enough time really to to go into a lot of the the story details of these records? We really don't. I mean, and I think that's what I had to I had to really give up on that. I mean, there's so many things we could talk about just with just with Sergeant Pepper's especially with the white album being that it's a double album and and really it was an album where the beatles technically broke up you know yeah. and it was just uh in my mind i i, I had to just kind of sit down and go okay you know you only have so much time <laughs> you know just kind of you know talk about the the things that you know stand out to you and and then, you know, everybody else can kind of go from there. And even yesterday, I mean, I saw on your Facebook page, you know, everybody has opinions about these records. And, and even people who maybe don't even like the Beatles, you know, I mean, you know, I, I can assume that almost, you know, most people who listen to music, you know, will have, you know, a, a variety of opinions, memories, feelings about, you know, these records. So, yeah, I mean, on Facebook yesterday, I asked this question, you know, if you could only pick one track from the white album you know which track would you pick and uh i don't think anybody who responded actually picked just one yeah. you know they all picked at least two or three some and then some of them more it's, it's so difficult you know to pick uh even you know even even four you know from the album but um we'll get to that so today we're gonna talk about uh, like I said, three albums from the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, The White Album, and Abbey Road. 
And uh, then we're going to talk about another band, which I was totally unfamiliar with from around the same time period, uh, the Bo Brummels, their album Triangle. And then we're going to end with uh, jazz sort of uh, pioneer, Sidney Bechet. Mm. So, um, but yeah, let's get into the Beatles albums. And we're going to start with Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, released in 1967. And uh, this is, you know, this album was coming off the heels of Revolver um, that we talked about last time. And, you know, we kind of talked about Revolver being the start of the Beatles all all sort of diverging and and going off and doing their own things. Um, And you can really start to hear that, you know, in the music. Um, Everybody's doing their own thing. Uh, You can definitely hear that in this album well really in 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 all the albums you know after that one um just just more and more um yeah what do you think of sergeant pepper Uh, album it's just i mean it's legendary i mean so many of the things that they did that helped influence a whole generation of bands you know um you know ironically you know we you know you mentioned bro brummels you know them included you know they they just cast this very long shadow, you know, especially with this record that that a lot of people were willing to to fall into, so to speak. I mean, you know, obviously the 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 maturity of what they were doing songwriting wise and, and definitely, I mean, you know, people make a lot of the Beatles using drugs and, um, you know, however you want to take that, the, the good or the bad. You know, drugs were definitely an influence, you know, when when it came to, you know, inspiration for their their songs. And, um, you know, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, you know, which everybody claims, you know, it's just a, you know, a hidden way of, you know, putting LSD, you know, into the song title. You know, John Lennon said that, that actually, you know, that that song was inspired by by his son, Julian, um, who apparently had a, a picture he wrote, you know, when he was in nursery school of a, a girl in his class. And, um, you know, he came home running, running in the house one day, apparently screaming, hey, dad, look, Lucy in the sky with diamonds, you know. And, and who knows what what John Lennon was going through that day <laughs> when he came home. Yeah, but, who knows you know, what who knows what he saw. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and apparently that that helped him along you know, with the writing of this song, which I mean, in a lot of their music, I guess a lot of the Beatles songs, you know, were obviously credited to Lennon and McCartney. But, you know, uh, apparently this song was it was mainly kind of John's idea, you know, initially. And I mean, the lyrics are are all sort of like a collage of, of different things as if someone was possibly, you know, having, you know, a psychedelic trip. And um, and even the sound of the music, you know, the 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 trippiness of, of what sounds like a like a harpsichord and and then some Indian type, you know, string instruments or guitars or whatever yeah, all yeah. going along. I mean, it's just a, a weird mix of, of, of things that a lot of people, I'm sure, had never heard before. And um, to this day, I mean, it's just one of my favorite Beatles songs, one of my favorite songs, period. Um, and, and again, you know, the, the thought of, of what they were doing, because I, I mean, obviously they, 
they had had achieved a great amount of success and popularity up to this point. But I think after this album, I mean, they they just exploded. I mean, it's still, you know, probably the one of the greatest selling records ever. You know, I mean, just as far as around the world, you know, I mean, you know, the, everybody, almost everybody knows about this record or has this record, you know. Yeah. And um, it, it was anyway. Um, well, I mean, what what did you think? I mean, primarily, I guess, I mean, when when you first started hearing, you know, this record? Well, um, I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, this was attributed to Lennon and McCartney. And a lot of these songs that we're going to hear off this album and the White Album and uh, Abbey Road, they're still attributed to Lennon, McCartney. But really, I mean, John Lennon and Paul McCartney are pretty much writing separately at this point. Yeah. You know? Um, so yeah. th- this is pretty much a John Lennon song, even though it's attributed to Lennon McCartney. Um, and, and that's really, it, it, with the exception of the George Harrison songs that we're going to play, you know, these songs are, they're by the individuals now. It's They're by John Lennon, you know, or Par- Paul McCartney or George Harrison separately. You know, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't think they're really collaborating, you know, other than just while they're recording in the studio and maybe one will throw in a little idea here and there, but in the actual, you know, writing process of, of writing the song, I don't think they're really collaborating anymore at this point, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I agree. Yeah, they, I think even it mentions a lot of the times where they would, especially on the white album, they, they were all in like separate studios, you know, yeah. <laughs> they weren't even looking at each other and face to face. I mean, sometimes they were, but, um, but yeah, anyway, yeah, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, obviously a great song. Um, one thing I thought was kind of interesting, um, the whole LSD thing, you know, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds spells LSD. Uh, and John Lennon apparently denied, he just said, you know, I didn't even think of that. You know, this is just a a uh, picture that my kid drew. And uh, interestingly, Paul McCartney says that it was mm-hmm. on purpose. So there's some, uh, you know, there's some disparity there. And this, uh, this is another thing that I found when I was researching um, because of, because everybody thought this was an LSD song, you know, whether it is or not, um, it was banned at the time by the BBC. And it seems like just about every song on this album and the white album were banned by the BBC. For, for some reason, you know, mm-hmm. uh, every song I looked at, it was banned by the BBC, banned by the BBC, you know, yeah. uh, either for because they thought it had drug references or because, um, I don't know, for whatever reason. But um, it's it's funny, you know, to hear these, I don't know, these songs today that sound so tame to us. And, yeah, but, you know, they and were... The, the BBC, BBC, I think, I mean, just from my experiences... I I know that that their fear of of outside influence, so to speak, you know, has always been you know an issue with them. I mean, um, you know, the uh, uh, basically a, a television network that has you know over the years, like you said, banned all kinds of stuff. Which I I don't understand that how you ban something that may not have even drawn anyone's attention. 
And then suddenly when you ban it, now all of a sudden everybody wants it. You know, well, oh, why did oh, they yeah, ban yeah. it? Why yeah. did they what what happened? You know, um the the police back in the day did a, a video for a song um that was on uh I think Ghost in the Machine called Invisible Sun. Uh and in the video they they show pictures of uh of like uh poor neighborhoods in, in Ireland. And I, I guess the, the BBC didn't like it. You know, they thought it was, in, you know, kind of an embarrassment and they banned the video. And, and all of a sudden it became this international deal where they they felt like, you know, they were trying to, you know, hide this side of, you know, I guess Belfast or, or wherever they were filming. And anyway, you know, I I'll, it always it's always funny to me what what they try, like you said, what they try to do to, you know, sort of, you know, steer people's heads away from whatever, you yeah. know. Well, yeah, and I mean, I just don't understand when leadership is going to figure out that every time they ban something, it just makes people want it more. It, it yeah. doesn't matter what it is, whether it's music or drugs or alcohol or books or, or, books or anything. Yeah, it's just like once you put that banned uh, stamp on it, you know, it's going to explode probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and roll this first track and then we can just continue talking after we hear it cool so this is lucy in the sky with diamonds by the beatles With plasticine pauses With looking glass ties Suddenly someone is there At the turnstile The girl with kaleidoscope And we just heard Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And we're going to move on to uh, their track, A Day in the Life. And, um, you know, one thing I wanted to say about this album, I wanted to talk a little bit about was um, it was kind of one of the very first real um, examples of studio kind of wizardry or like a studio engineering masterpiece i guess you could say um and it's really amazing to think about it when when you realize that all they had to work with was a four track recorder Mm -hmm. and so what they would do is they would you know record all this stuff and mix it down onto single tracks and then um mix those down onto a four track and then put that 
onto one of the tracks of the master tape and they just keep you know sort of doing this um to achieve you know multiple multiple yeah. tracks you know on a four track player or yeah, on a four layer, track recorder layers of sound literally yeah 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 and um, i mean it was so impressive especially to people in the know like uh, brian wilson who we talked about uh, from the Beatles, who I mean, from the Beatles, for, from the Beach Boys, who was also uh, kind of a studio tech, a studio innovator himself. And um, I read things when I was researching this that after he heard Sgt. Pepper, he, he kind of, you know, I, I guess he felt like he was in kind of a competition with the Beatles in this sense, you know, to uh, mm. produce an album like this that was like full of studio wizardry. And after, after he heard Sgt. Pepper, he just kind of gave up. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, he just kind of admitted defeat after that. But um, this, uh, I don't know. Did, did you do you want to say something? No, I mean, I, I'm 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 really listening to you. I mean, again, there's there's so much that goes on in this song, as far as the the structure of it. I mean, like little things. I mean, obviously the 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 end of the song, you know where they they hit the piano chord and the way it the way it just goes on and on seemingly you know for for several seconds and you you sit and you listen to that i mean i remember the first time someone was like you know you need to really really sit down and listen to how long how long that that note goes and just little bitty things like that that they did in that song um that like i said like like you said that so many people look back at, at what they were doing and 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 like you said threw their hands up in there it's like okay they they're awesome you know i i don't know what i don't know how they did that i don't know where that came from but yeah that was that was great you know where what do we do now you know um yeah well you know this is i one reason that i i thought it would be cool to play this song um uh, a day in the life is because i think this song came about uh through all the circumstances that were going on at the time. So the, the fraying of the band, um, they are them starting to work really independently from each other. And also their, um, their kind of turn toward the studio, you know, because, yeah. um, like I mentioned last time around the time of revolver, they decided to stop touring and they created all these, films right so they could show these films all over the world in the united states and all this stuff you know films like hard days night help yellow submarine and on and um they could show these films and get their music out and get people seeing their music without having to tour so sort of being freed from the burden of you know constantly touring they just kind of retreated into the studio and and that allowed them to do, you know, make all these innovations and allow them to do all this stuff. Now, the uh, the song that we're going to hear, A Day in the Life, um, I just, I listened to this song, you know, so many times, and I just think it's super interesting, because what this song is, it's, it's two different songs. Hmm. It's two completely separate songs. There's one song by John Lennon, and there's one song by Paul McCartney, right? They're mm -hmm. both these verses to these unfinished songs um and they're like i said if you listen to it again they're completely different songs 
Um, so, so a day in the life, it starts off with this John Lennon song, right? Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, singing. And then you have this transitional device that they just came up with in the studio. Cause they were like, okay, how are we going to cobble these two songs together? So what, it, <laughs> what it does, it has this Lennon song. Then it goes into this kind of chaotic dissonant orchestral crescendo, right? Yeah. Yeah. That they use as this transitioning device. And then it goes into this Paul McCartney song, which is a completely different song from the John Lennon song. So then that goes on. Then we get the orchestral transition again. It goes back to the John Lennon song. And then since, since these were like totally unfinished songs, there was no ending. So it goes back into the orchestral crescendo again to this big, you know, orchestra hit and piano chord that just fades out to silence. So that's the whole song right there. And yeah. it, was, it was created literally in the studio from these f- song fragments to make this one song. And it works. And it works. <laughs> yeah, somehow. I mean, somehow it's like it, it works. Yeah. The, um, the, the piano chord at the end, too. Apparently they they were trying to do like this kind of vocal ah uh, type thing at the end that that never really worked for them and and it's one of those songs too that 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 chord has you going to your volume to turn it way up because they had to turn the volume up in the studio to get the full effect of that chord fading out because normally with the levels you know the way they were you you wouldn't hear it but but you do even though it's really really faint and it's just one of those things where you're you know you're going to your stereo and you're trying to see how long does it last and you probably got you know people looking at you like what what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah and, um, yeah yeah i think they had the microphones like literally right down in the piano right over the strings mm, to get that yeah yeah um yeah, yeah. So, uh, just before we play this and we get on to the next album, a couple other things I thought were interesting about this album um, is that you know they they first released a single right before this album and had "Strawberry Fields Forever" on the A side and then "Penny Lane" on the B side. Yeah, and I just thought you know it was interesting that these these songs, these really these super famous songs, were you know, not part of a Beatles album. They were just released as, as a single and they were not on Sgt. Pepper. Hmm. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And then uh, the month that the album came out, which was June 1967, on June 25th, the Beatles performed All You Need Is Love um, on television to a worldwide audience on the f- very first ever live global television link. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting. That, that that is interesting. I mean, I I didn't know that. Um, yeah. So I don't know. You want to roll this track? Yeah. Um, it's it's just a great song. I really we really don't have enough time to <laughs> go into. Oh, let's just yeah. I mean, the, we don't the, the details. It's the or the orchestral work on this song. I mean, it as far as pop music goes. I mean, is is some of the best you'll ever hear. Yeah. I mean. Any, anyway, um, without you know muttering anymore, uh, <laughs> this is a, a day in the life from the Beatles. Woke up, fell out of bed, dragged a comb across my head. 
waking up, I noticed I was late Found my coat and grabbed my hat Made the bus in seconds flat Found my way upstairs and had a smoke And somebody spoke and I went into a dream just listening to uh, a day in the life from the Beatles and uh, next uh, I believe we are going on to um, the white album which is really it is titled the Beatles um, but just because obviously the way the cover was and um, most people just simply called it the white album um, this album is to me is is even harder to talk about than than Sgt. Pepper and not hard in a sense that that I, I just I have no idea what to say, but it's just where do you start? You know, yeah. um, there's just so many great songs. And initially they, you know, they, they kind of were from the outside getting all kinds of, you know, flack from people. You know, why a double album is too many songs. You know, you could just make one really good album, but they they had so much material, you know, they were like, you know, we, what are we going to do with all this? I mean, we, we have to do something. And, um, you know, I, I think it's just, it, it's just a great example of, of just how imaginative they were in, in their, their patterns for, for songs and songwriting and, um, and arrangements and, you know, just, just so many different things going on on this record. Um, yes, dude, so many different things going on. <laughs> <clears throat> um, yeah, you know, this this period in their au revoir, I don't know. Um, yeah. I'm looking for a word. <laughs> um, yeah, this period apparently opened with uh, the group, you know, they, uh, they lost their longtime collaborator, um, uh, Brian Epstein, I think is his name. 
Uh-huh. Uh, he died. Um, well, it could have been an overdose. It could have been, uh, but there are some indications that it could have been a suicide. <clears throat> and um, at this point, you know, the Beatles were basically like, we're in trouble uh, because uh, apparently he was a big part of their band and their their cohesion as a band. And, and they apparently, this is when they turned to uh, the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi uh, in India for kind of for, for guidance, you know. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they all, you know, went to India. Um, and uh, for this, it was supposed to be a three-month thing, you know, where they're going to be there and going through all these, you know, kind of spiritual guidance and exercises and all this stuff. Um, apparently, Ringo Starr left after just 10 days um, thinking the whole thing was bollocks. Um, McCartney said he, didn't, said he didn't like the food too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, which I think is crazy. Cause I love in- Indian food but anyway. Um, <laughs> but Paul McCartney left after about a month because he got tired of it. Um, then apparently somebody told John Lennon that uh, the Maharishi was trying to manipulate the band and that he had made sexual advances towards some of the female guests. At yeah. The, and yeah. Um, apparently uh, Lennon was like enraged and left immediately. He took George Harrison and everybody else with him. And Harrison apparently was not convinced that the Maharishi was, was guilty of this. You know, Harrison was always kind of the spiritual one. And uh, I think he more than anybody else wanted to really explore this stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that, you know, I, I think, um, Paul McCartney later said that, that, uh, he feels like that they made a mistake that they thought the Maharishi was, uh, you know, more than he was and, and all this kind of stuff. But, um, but you know, that was when the, when they came back, you know, and, and, uh, went into the studio for these sessions, that was kind of the, uh, I don't know the atmosphere that they, mm-hmm. the, the point that they were at, you know, so I think they, they felt really kind of separated, um, not unified, uh, you know, without, without guidance. You know, I think this is, this is kind of the feeling. And, and I think after being together and being so famous and, you know, having so much on their shoulders, I think it was really starting to get to them. I think they were starting to, you know, fight and, uh, become maybe suspicious and jealous of each other. And, it was just, man, it was, it was, everything was falling apart at this point. And yeah. they still managed to put out this, this incredible album, you know, yeah. which yeah. is and, amazing. Yeah. And, and, and again, it, to, to look at it as it is, it, it it's just a great kind of prelude to what they were all going to kind of become as individual artists. I mean, you, you hear songs that, that genuinely sound like, you know, solo Paul McCartney songs and, and then songs that sound like George Harrison solo and, and definitely songs that sound like John Lennon, where he would be on his own, but still, you know, they're a band. I mean, they're not done yet. Um, and, and, and going back to when they were in India, um, I, I think somehow or another, I mean, when, when I was reading about the, the issue with um, the Maharishi and, and I guess it was Prudence, who was Mia Farrell's sister, 
um, apparently that it was someone made the story up and and I don't know why they would do it, you know, or if it was even, you know, true, you know, maybe someone just thought, you know, hey, it's 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 time to go home, guys, you know, and, and let's 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 just let's get back to to what we were doing. And, and maybe that's why that that happened. Who knows? You know, but, um, you know, definitely, you know, things were kind of kind of coming off the rails, so to speak, you know, e- even with them, you know, getting back to to recording, you know, it was it was the beginning of the end. I oh, guess. yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, they were pretty much broken up at this point. I mean, uh, even the even the band members have said that by this time, the White Album, they were pretty much broken up. Um, yeah. You know, like I said, everything we're doing their own. Everybody was doing their own thing. Um, you know, John Lennon kind of really didn't like what Paul was doing. He called Obladi Obladog Granny shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Ringo Starr actually quit the yeah. band during this period um, for a while, and that left Paul McCartney to play drums on several of the tracks. Yeah. Um, there was apparently a well-established understanding between the band members that you don't bring significant others into the studio. Mm-hmm. And this was famously disregarded by John Lennon when he insisted on bringing Yoko Ono into every session. Yeah, which, which, which brought so much, you know, negative gravity yes. towards Yoko Ono's yeah. universe, which I, I, I still really... I mean, I, I understand why a lot of people don't like Yoko Ono, who, who, by the way, I love her, you know, just as as a person, as an artist, you know, just, you know, I, I, I love Yoko Ono. Well, yeah, and, I mean, yeah, I agree with you that, that she's been treated so unfairly. And, and really, the, a lot of people that just love, love the Beatles, you know, almost treated Yoko like some kind of Judas. Yeah, exactly. Know? Like it was her fault that and that's the thing I always hear. It was her fault that the Beatles broke up. Which is stupid. I mean, yeah, they they were already whether she was there or not. You know, they were already on their way to to to. They were. It was just a, a process. You know, when you mature, you know, beyond what the Beatles had, and and I mean, they were. You know, eventually you you have to you have to do something different. You know, and and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, obviously, you know, people the the thought of the Beatles breaking up was it was just like perish the thought, you know, are you kidding me? No way, no way should the Beatles break up. But, you know, they're all grown men, you know, they, they want to do different stuff other than the Beatles, you know, even though the Beatles for what it was, was, was brilliant, you know, and, and they, they probably could have gone on and, and made records and maybe even come back out of the studio and, and gone on tour, but it just was not the beat for them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just like with uh, any great artist or even any good artist, you know, um, and they were all great artists. Uh, an artist wants to keep expanding and keep, do, you know, growing and learning and doing different things. And um, yeah, that's just what happened, you know, and they, they all started to, to uh, go their own separate ways and do their own things. It was just inevitable. It had nothing to do with Yoko with Ono. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, she, she, I mean, maybe Yoko could have been a, a catalyst for John and, and his decisions, but as far as the band breaking up, no, I, I never bought that. I mean, just 
I mean, to me, you know, they they have enough, you know, desertion, so to speak, to where if they wanted to stay together, you know, it wouldn't be up to, you know, one person. I, I, I mean, as as powerful as Yoko may have been, you know, in her influence, I, I don't see her breaking the Beatles up. No. <laughs> No, no, no. So let's move on to the first track. So we're going to break the mold for the first time and possibly the only time um, on this podcast. We usually play excerpts from two tracks on each album. We're going to play four excerpts from four tracks from this album. And that's not even enough. I mean, yeah. uh, we, we had <laughs> because we were having an incredibly difficult time choosing two tracks from from this album that is just so diverse and so huge and has has so many amazing tracks on it and um, we we even had trouble picking four so um yeah but that's what we're gonna do we're gonna play four excerpts from this album and we're gonna start with while my guitar gently weeps um you know possibly one of george harrison's greatest songs um i love this song absolutely love it yeah yeah um it it really i mean it really this song really in my eyes just rockets harrison his talent his songwriting talent just so far i mean in into the you know into the same realm as uh i'm not saying you know he wasn't always there in the same realm but i think you know george harrison was always looked at as well kind of you know in a secondary um, role as a writer to the, Lennon the quiet, and McCartney, the quiet Beatle. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think especially this song, you know, it, it just puts him right there with them. It, it is as a as far as a you know songwriting ability, and um, yeah, it's just a great song. What do you think of "While My Guitar Gently Weeps"? Yeah, I, I, I love it too. I mean, it's just you know you know his 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 playing style and and along with you know Eric Clapton who is not really credited you know for playing on this song you know in in the way it sounds i mean it just very very melancholy and bluesy but but beautiful at the same time you know and um you know like you said it i think it was one of those songs that that kind of helped you know galvanize his you know place in, in rock and roll history it was just one of those one of those songs that, that got covered by everybody i mean yeah anyone who wanted to play guitar and and show off on playing guitar would try to play this song you know and um you know it, it's influences as far as the way you know even his just his voice sounds on this song would would go on you know to pop up in in later you know work of his to where it was kind of it would kind of be like a, a signature sound for him um and uh yeah just just a just a really really great track that 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 really sticks out on this album yeah. um yeah yeah i thought it was really interesting you know how george harrison uh got the idea to write this song you know he like like i said before he was Oh, you know, the spiritual one, I guess, you know, you could mm-hmm. say, you know, interested in uh, spiritualism, philosophy and religion. Anyway, um, he was apparently reading the Chinese Book of Changes at this time and, and really exploring this Eastern philosophy that 
everything is connected to everything and there are no coincidences and anything and all that stuff. And so he was determined to write a song um, and this is how he went about it. He, he was apparently at his mother's house and he grabbed a random book just randomly from the bookshelf and he said, I'm going to open this book to a random page and the first line that I see, I'm going to write a song based on that line. Because again, you know, if you're subscribing to this Eastern philosophy, nothing's a coincidence, right? It, the first line he sees, that's the line he's supposed to see, right? Um, so he opens this random book and the first line he sees is gently weeps. And then he closes the book and that's when he started writing this song. And um, I don't know. I just I just thought that was kind of interesting, you know, that, yeah, that this very. whole song, yeah, this whole song could, you know, germinate you know from that one thing that one act um and uh you know he brought in a, a kind of a last minute decision but he brought in eric clapton um to play the guitar solos on this song so the guitar soloing that you hear on this track is eric clapton and he actually had to you know really convince eric he, clapton didn't want to do it because he was like you know nobody comes in and plays on beatles albums you know and um but I thought it was kind of interesting that uh, Clapton or uh, Harrison later said that Clapton's presence in the studio um, had a had a pretty significant effect on the band. Yeah. And it's he said uh, it made them all try a bit harder. They were all on their best behavior when he uh-huh. was around. So, you know, obviously they all had uh, great respect for Eric Clapton and you know, wanted to make a good showing while he was there and all that stuff. But, um, yeah. So anything else you want to say about while my guitar before we play it? Uh, yeah. Um, uh, later on, uh, yeah, well, I mean, we'll, we, I guess we could talk about, it. there's, there's definitely some interesting stuff between George and Eric. Uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can, we can talk about more when we get to Abbey road, but, uh, but no, um, just, uh, you know, just, George Harrison has such a great, great spirit and a great vision. Um, I, I I just love that guy. I mean, you know, if you ever like get to listen to him, like as far as like a taped interview or whatever, um, you know, he he was always compelling in his 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 conversation. Somebody asked him one time about, uh, you know, how do you deal with, uh, you know, issues with government. And um, he he flat out with without like you know you know making any bones about it he just said we just kill all the politicians and that just helps the whole situation of government and he didn't smile he wasn't kidding and I was like wow <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I mean he, he was just he was just you know he would be just really frank and he like I said he wasn't trying to joke or or anything he's just like just get get rid of all of them. And, and it just totally straightens everything out. You know, I mean, you know, he would say stuff like that and, and, and just have you, you know, you know, in wonder, so to speak. And uh, but anyway, um, yeah, yeah, let's 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 just let's because we got we got three more to play. Let's let's just go ahead and listen to this song. All right. So um, this is the first track. While my guitar gently weeps by the Beatles.
and we just heard while my guitar gently weeps and uh, yeah you know all that Eric Clapton George Harrison stuff you know we could talk about it now we're definitely going to talk about it. I mean uh the Derek and the Dominoes album Layla and other assorted songs is in this book so you know Layla the song is famously written about George Harrison's wife who uh-huh. Eric Clapton was trying to get with but anyway yeah trying <laughs> well yeah he eventually succeeded right um yeah <laughs> yeah so um yeah, but anyway, the next song that we're going to move on to is Helter. No, no, no. Before Helter Skelter, sorry, we're going to talk about. Um, what are we going to talk about? Uh, let's see. Uh, how about Julia? Uh, I think it's Julia. Yeah, Julia. Yeah, that's uh, John Lennon. I think is is uh, the primary songwriter on, on this song, and I think it's sort of like an ode to his mother who had a. Uh, I, I think at, at that time I already passed. I think his mom passed when he was really, really young, um, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, this is just one of those songs that I just think is just it, it's so simple. And, and there's a lot of that too. The dichotomy of, of of just massive structure and 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 crazy arrangements, and and then songs on this album that are just plain Jane like white paper simple you know and and that's yeah. what i think i love about this song is it's just very quiet and very sweet kind of sad really um but just one of those things where you know it, it, it's someone who you know just takes a a very faint memory of, of someone who you know they knew when they were you know barely able probably to to walk and speak and and try to write it into a song you know i i just I love that concept of, of of what he was trying to do with this song. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just like you said, you know, I love the fact that there are songs like this on the album that are so pared down and so kind of raw and not overly orchestrated and, you know, overly produced and um yeah. Yeah. I just Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a great, beautiful, um kind of intimate song you know very very just just like i said just just it's like he's pouring his heart out really you know i I mean that's that's one thing about this song that i really love um so i i I think that what um you know definitely happens in this on this record is like like you said i the 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 difference in in the styles of songs will 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 help make you know you know believers out of anybody who who like I said maybe loved the Beatles before or didn't you know but but this album just has something for everybody you know and um, you know this this song is is just it, it's so quiet and 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 so lovable but if if you don't like quiet and lovable you know then. The, the one of the songs we're going to talk about after this, uh, it's not quiet or lovable at all. Well, you know, some people may love it, but it's definitely not a quiet song, uh, Helter Skelter. But, um, you know, I, but I love, I love Julia. It's, you know, another song that's been covered by, by tons of people, you know, here and I, I think, uh, Ramsey Lewis, uh, piano player, he does a, a great version of this song, you know, almost six to the original arrangement. 
you know, just just real quiet piano playing, you know, and um, again, let's just love this song. Awesome. Well, you want to just roll it? Yeah, sure. This is uh, the Beatles with Julia. Half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia. song of love Julia Julia Seashell eyes Windy smile Calls me So I sing the song of love Julia Sky is shimmering, glimmering in the sun. Julia, Julia, morning moon, touch me so. And you just heard Julia by the Beatles. And uh, what song is next? Uh, Yeah, we're going to move on to uh, Helter Skelter. I mean, something totally different (laughs) than Julia. You know, I listened to this song and it's almost like, I mean, is this the first punk song? That's my question. Is this the first punk song? Well, I've I've heard that. I've heard the first metal song. It doesn't sound metal to me. I mean, I you know I came up. Metal was my music growing up, and yeah. uh, this doesn't sound metal to me. This sounds this sounds punk to me. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. But yeah, I mean, it's just I don't know, and especially coming from someone like uh, Paul McCartney. Yeah. And but I think you know that's one reason why he wrote this song is because he was getting a lot of criticism. Uh, you know, the critics were saying, you know, that he only wrote ballads and he, <clears throat> he, he only wrote sort of poppy, fluffy, ballady stuff. Yeah. And I think this, is, this was his answer to that. Um, yeah. He apparently read, uh, oh, some review of some band. I can't remember who it was. But saying that the the review said that their album was just this loud, clangorous, you know, uh, echoed, just just really raw and, and aggressive, and you know, Paul was intrigued by that. You know, he was like, mm, "That sounds pretty cool." And then he listened to the album, and apparently, in his opinion, the album wasn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, "Well, you know what? I, I'm gonna do it," and he did it. Yeah, I, I think that band was the Who. The Who, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it was a Who, yeah, and I, he, I mean, he is. I mean, I mean, I, I guess I, I liken the the conversation initially from the the so called writer as basically 
tell, telling Paul McCartney almost to his face that you're soft. You know, yes. it's like you're you're soft. You know, there's everything about you soft, and I'm I'm pretty sure that it probably probably pissed him off. Oh, I, I'm sure it did. <laughs> and 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 but he is. I mean, he's as far as like like soft pop tunes or airy love song type pop tunes. He's really the king. I mean, you know, and he may not want to wear that crown, but but he is. I mean, Paul McCartney. I mean, on on into his solo career. I mean, he kept that going. I mean, he and he's good at it. I mean, you know, nothing to be ashamed of. But uh, again, this is one of those songs that I'm, I'm sure that once he did it, he I don't think he knew how much it was going to influence a variety of people, you know, people that, you know, had some some very sinister motives. Um, I'm pretty sure he didn't. You know, he may not have ever written it or 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 put it out if he, if he did, you know. Um, but again, like you, like going back to another thing you said about it being maybe like the first punk song. Um, I, I didn't think about that. I, you, you, you may be right. I mean, I mean, it definitely, you know, would have been influential, you know, in in that sound, you know, um, and I mean, it's just, it, it's just so crazy and, and so loud. Um, yeah. you know, especially for the time that it came out, you know, uh, huh. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting reading about the uh, environment in the studio when they were recording this song, because apparently the vibe among all four of them was they were just like amped up, just charged up, just being crazy in the studio. Apparently, um, George Harrison uh, got this big ashtray, put stuff in it and set it on fire and then was running around the studio with this thing on his head, screaming you know, with it on fire and, um, you know, they did a bunch of takes and, you know, at the very end of the song, you hear, uh, Ringo Starr yell out, I got blisters on my fingers. Yeah. And apparently that was, that was, you know, something he actually yelled out after recording the song 18 times after the 18th take after it was over, he apparently flung his drumsticks across the studio and yelled out i got blisters on my fingers yeah and they kept that in (laughs) apparently there's a version of this song that's 22 minutes long yeah yeah and i was like oh god (laughs) (laughs) 22 minutes i mean i mean and some uh, like you said there's so many versions that they did you know apparently there's one there's some that kind of build and and then and they're quiet and then they you know all, all kinds of stuff that they were doing, but yeah, the and the the whole thing with the ashtray. Apparently, that was like an homage to to Arthur Brown. You know, the the I am the God of Hellfire guy. You know, um, who ran around in a video with a tray of fire on his head, and uh, and yeah, that it just sounded like one of those things where they were just trying to, you know, let it all hang out. You know, and and I imagine that can that can come from you know the the tension and the the pressure of, of being, you know, who they were. It's like, you know what, let's just cut loose, you know, and, and, and see what happens. And, uh, you know, that, that, that in itself, you know, it was, was great, you know, for, for them to be able to do that and, and put it all on tape, you know, and, and, and like I said, I mean, some of the reaction obviously was, you know, some people really loved it and, and some people, you know, thought it was awful, you know, where it was just, you know, 
them not being the Beatles at all, but trying to be something totally away from what they were, which, you know, I'm sure that was part of Paul's, you know, whole plan, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, him just, just that it must've taken people back just hearing, you know, they're used to hearing Paul sing all these, you know, wonderful ballads and all this stuff with his really kind of sweet, smooth voice. And here he is just screaming at the top of his lungs and, and, uh, you know, loud, clangorous, just really distorted guitars and, you know, Ringo Starr just banging the drums for all he's worth. And yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And, and again, about the, the influence, uh, I, when, whenever I, I, I think about this song, I cannot help but think about uh, Charles Manson, you know, and his yeah. whole, you know, deal with the the murders in, in California and and how he he felt. I mean, when he listened to this song, the, the things that he thought the Beatles were singing about, you know, this, you know, prophetic race war that was supposed to happen between, you know, black and white people and 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 just all kinds of stuff that that he took from it. And I was like, okay, really? (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I read that too. It's really, I think sad that Charles Manson is now going to forever be associated. Yeah. With this song and with the Beatles because, and you know, I, I, you know, when I was researching this song, um, I never really knew Charles Manson's whole thing, mm-hmm. you know, before. What an unbelievable moron. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's all I can say. What an idiot, you know. And um, anybody out there who's, you know, wearing a Charles Manson shirt or whatever – you better go and read what Charles Manson was about because if yeah. you're wearing a Charles Manson shirt, you're an idiot. I mean, I'm sorry, but and, and, yeah. and what what I'll say about Charles Manson, he he fascinates me. Don't don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I know he's crazy, and I know Charles Manson. He's done some horrible stuff. He's got some really messed up ideas. But just just his whole persona, I, I can see why you know people wanted to follow him. You know, he he was he was very charismatic. He could be very likable, but he just had some some crazy, jaded, mixed up thoughts about how things were supposed to go down and how they were supposed to end. Well, dude, and, and unbelievably racist. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, <laughs> I mean that, that's why that's why he's in prison still. I mean, he he comes up for parole, you know, every every so often. He's never getting out of jail. Trust me, they they ain't letting Charles Manson out of jail. Yeah, yeah. There ain't no way. I mean, I he'd have to break out, you know. Yeah. And, they, and I mean, anyway, you know, like you said, it's 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 unfortunate that now. I mean, when people see Helter Skelter, they they think about the book or the movie that's associated with him almost instantaneously, and then maybe the Beatles almost as a as an afterthought. You know, some people, not all, you know, but yeah, well, hope. I mean, I'm just I just hope that, you know, given enough time. These songs will transcend that and all that Charles Manson stuff will just fall back, you know, into the mist of history. And we can, you know, listen to this music without that association because, yeah, yeah, just yeah. But um, goofy. (laughs) Yeah. So let's check it out. Um, This track, Helter Skelter by the Beatles. (laughs) 
just heard Helter Skelter by the Beatles and we're going to move on to the final track that we're going to play from the White Album. Yes, we're going to play it. Revolution 9. So, um, you know, this is the one with it that I think both of us really wanted to play and really wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, by far the strangest thing on the album. Um, it's really a piece of, of avant-garde art. Yeah, uh, released definitely. on a pop album, yeah. and uh, I don't know what. What do you think? Uh, what's your take on Revolution Nine? Um, just it, it's almost like a a literal period in the Beatles' career where it, it, it almost signifies the, the 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 ending of all that they were. Um, you know, definitely they they were conflicted about the song because I mean the the song really is is a I think a. A, a work of, of John, Yoko, and George. And I mean, Paul is there, but I, apparently Paul McCartney did not like it. Uh, Ringo wasn't that crazy about it, but it's just one of those songs that it, it is totally revolutionary, not only for the Beatles, but, but for music and, and the use of, of, of tape loops and, and, and I guess what you would call samples. I mean, they really weren't samples then, and it was just a breakthrough for for them where you know a lot of people when when they first heard it hated it hated this song yeah and, and, and it, it brought more more ire for yoko because they thought well this is all yoko ono's fault and this is this is her song and this is her her doing and blah 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 and but but no one really knew you know like you said what what a an avant-garde type piece of work this was and until maybe years later after people you know started going through and and, and seeing what they were doing and and, and all the the, the crossfading in the song and 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 different things that you hear and I mean this there's, there's there's so much to pick at 
you know, where, you know, it, 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 it's just a, a great, a great complicated mix of things um, that are going on. And, and I think still to this day, this song influences, you know, quite a, a number of artists and, and musicians, you know, on into, you know, inspiring them to do whatever they do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, when, when, uh, when I was trying to wrap my head around this whole album and, and, uh, researching it and all that, one of the things I was trying to do was put myself back into this period, you know, and try to imagine how something like this would have been received Mm-hmm. by people and of course I can't do that it's not possible you know neither one of us were alive uh, during this time so what I did was I called my parents because hmm. you know my my mom and both my parents were, were big Beatles fans you know, I think I mentioned on the show last time that they had a lot of the original vinyl Beatles albums they had the original White Album you know this album that I li- that listened to when I was growing up and um you know, she was about 14, 15, you know, when, when the, the Beatles mania first hit. So she was like the exact, she was like the perfect age, right? Mm. And she kind of grew up with the Beatles. And um, so by the time this album came out, this, this white album, she was, I think, about maybe 19 or 20 when this came out. And so I asked her, you know, I just said, you know, what did you think of this? You know, when it came out. Um, because this is a far cry, you know, from I want to hold your hand, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she said, you know, she said it was really Sergeant Pepper that that they were all like, what the hell is this? You know, they didn't get Sergeant Pepper at all. <laughs> and um, uh, she said this album uh, was kind of a relief for them because she said, and just like you said earlier, that it kind of had something for everybody. You know, there was so much on this album. There's so many songs. And so there were a lot of songs that were um, really friendly, you know, listener friendly. And um, then there were songs like this one. So I brought it up. I said, well, what did you think about Revolution 9? You know, because this was something. And I was expecting her to say, oh, we hated it. We just hated it. But she didn't say that. What she said I thought was interesting. She said that we just thought, that the Beatles knew more about the world than we did. <laughs> and I think she just kind of, you know, I don't think they sat around and listened to revolution nine, you know, mm-hmm. but I think they just kind of accepted it as, you know, the Beatles are, they're on know, another level. They're on another level than we are. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. um, and just kind of accepted it for what it was, you know, um, yeah. which I thought was, I don't know. I just I, I kind of thought that was an interesting response because I think if something like this was released on an album today where people are, you know, so much more worldly and, and also so much more cynical and maybe so much maybe more opinionated and, and, and a little more closed minded. I think a lot of people would just be like, what, what the, the hell? hell is this crap? You know, and, yeah, and they yeah, would turn I, it off within within 10 seconds. It would be off, you know. Yeah. And, and um, that, that's that's evident in how music is now where. You know, artists are almost terrified to to break out and do things that that are different from the normal. Um, just somebody that comes to my head right off the the top of my head uh, when when Lauren Hill was with the Fugees and and kind of had 
you know, a certain style where it was, I guess you would call urban or, or, or soul or hip hop um, and broke away from that style and did a, a an album of, of all kind of like acoustic folk songs where she was just sitting playing a guitar and, and would sing and rap. I mean, you know, people, a lot of people hated it, you know, and she really hasn't made a record since, you know, um, it's just one of those things where, like you said, I mean, if, if people are, are thrown off by something you do and whether you're the Beatles or whoever, you know, you know, they will, they will let you know immediately, you know, Hey, this, this is awful. This sucks. But I mean, they were, they're at the point where they were kind of just like, you know what, we're going to do what we want to do. You know, even internally in the band, if if we have, you know, some strife about it, you know, so be it. And um, I I mean, that's obviously commendable. But again, you know, I, I look back at at how they were they were really trying to wind down to to not being a band anymore. And I mean, that could have been a part of this, too, where they're like, you know, we're going to take an opportunity while we're still together to do some groundbreaking things. Um that maybe nobody else has done before. Just kind of have some fun, you know, and, and try Cause apparently, I mean, reading about this, this isn't the first time they, they tried to do a song like this. Um, uh, reading into the, the history, they, they had a song when they were recording, uh, uh, Penny Lane, uh, called Carnival of Light that, um, was inspired partly by John Cage, who, who does all uh, just a ton of experimental things with music? Yeah, and I I've never heard it, you know, but I, you know, I imagine that, you know, they were already kind of leaning towards that direction of, of of playing with definitely with tape loops, you know, and 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 different sounds and 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 fading music in and out and 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 just kind of, you know, playing with the, I guess the quadraphonic medium so to speak. Uh, and 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 trying to just stand out. I mean, and and that's the one thing with me and the Beatles that they they always were were standouts. I mean, they always kind of had their own thing, their own style. I mean, they they definitely were influenced by a variety of artists. You know, you know, country and blues and soul music and and all of the kinds of things. But they they had their own spin on it. You know, and that that's the thing that made them special to me. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean this this piece is just um, it's it's like you said it's it's influenced by John Cage, also by uh, Karlheinz Stockhausen, who um, actually they John Lennon put on the cover of uh, Sergeant Pepper. He's one of the people, um, you know, in that collage on the uh-huh. on the cover of Sergeant Pepper, and he was a a composer like John Cage, but doing stuff like this you know, with uh, early, early um, analog synthesizers and tape manipulation and, and all that stuff. It was basically called music concrete, um, hmm. where you take found sounds, you know, and then you manipulate them, you know, with tape. But this this represents, you know, John Lennon and Yoko Ono are pretty much responsible for this Revolution 9. And um, this represents, man, I don't know how many hours of studio time basically sitting there with tape so there's no digital anything you know mm-hmm. there's no there's no computer interfaces there's no you know anything they're just sitting there with a tape with a brown magnetic tape and uh 
They're sitting in the studio, uh, physically cutting that tape with razor blades um, and, you know, taping it back together with tape and, you know, running it through uh, tape, multiple tape recorders and recording. I mean, it's it's a an unbelievably laborious process to, <clears throat> to do this. And, you know, I, I had to do this actually when I was in school. I took this class intro to electronic music and we had to learn about all this stuff you know the original analog synthesizers and i had to actually learn to um to cut tape you know with a razor blade and slight splice it back together and do all this just using a reel-to-reel tape and it's just man it's 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 <laughs> tedious it's tedious yeah, so a bit a um bit. but uh yeah should we just go ahead and and play this yeah and yeah, at, at this, this at this point man you know this track is like almost 10 minutes long i have no idea at this point still what excerpt I'm going to pull from this, but yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> we can look at it in the spirit of John Cage. You know, it'll be, a, it'll be a random event, right? Yeah, so, there you go. <laughs> so here is uh, a random sampling from the Beatles revolution nine. Watusi, the twist, Eldorado. Take this, brother. May it serve you well. And we just heard Revolution 9 by the Beatles from the White Album. And we're going to move on to our last Beatles album that we're going to talk about, Abbey Road, released in 1969, um, which, you know, after doing my research, uh, you know, chronologically, Let It Be, released in 1970, was their last album. But in reality, this was their last album. Because the majority of Let It Be was recorded before Abbey Road was recorded. Mm. Um, so really, this is the final album of the Beatles. This is their final statement. Um, and uh, I don't know, what, what did you think of Abbey Road? 
uh, great way to walk off into the sunset, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, just a, another good version of, of, you know, individual kind of personalities and musical styles showing up uh, on a record. Also, too, uh, one thing about these last two records that I, I've, I've always loved is the, the presence of Billy Preston, um, yeah. who, who played organ and kind of turned out almost to be like a fifth member of the Beatles, where um, his sound was was very much needed and, and very much helpful in in what the Beatles were, were I think, trying to do. Um, and uh, I I, I want to say that that their influence on 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 this record was was kind of attributed. I mean, you can and I guess you can listen to this this first song where where people are or or kind of you know going Timothy Leary so to speak oh uh, yeah and, uh, yeah turn on tune in drop out as he would say and uh that whenever i hear this song that that's kind of what what i feel you know or what i sense and um and again going back to to Billy Preston and the and the way the the, the organ kind of you know plays in, in in this song you know it, it's a very mellow feel, but a sort of a, a conscious feel. Uh, I, I think that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, we're talking and, about uh, come together, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And and, and I think that's the first song we're going to listen to is yeah. is come together. Um, and uh, what what did you think about this song? Well, I love it. I love this song. Um, and like you said, you know, you you mentioned Timothy Leary. And apparently John Lennon originally wrote this song for the campaign, the the gubernatorial campaign that Timothy Leary uh, was running for uh, when he was running for governor of California. His campaign slogan was, let's get it together. So Mm. apparently um, John Lennon wrote this song for that campaign for Timothy Leary, um, the famous, uh, you know, advocate of LSD in the 60s. he was a professor, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, professor, I, I believe at Berkeley in California and, and a, a big proponent of LSD. And uh, yeah, you know, and it, of course this song has one of the most famous, most recognizable bass lines of any pop song ever. Uh, you know, I just, it's a oh, great, yeah, yeah it, it's a, it's a great song. I love it. Um yeah. Yeah, you want to just roll it? Yeah, yeah, and you know, without going into much further ado, and, and I, I think um, another thing about this song is the 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 echo of of John Lennon's voice at the beginning of the song. It it's one of the most recognizable beginnings of of any song I've ever heard. You know, yeah, and um, you know, I I, I love the way that sounds. I mean, I've I've always I've always you know enjoyed that it's just it's such a trippy sound and um <laughs> yeah you know like i said going back to timothy leary again just he just seemed to be one of those guys that that was always into you know obviously drugs but you know kind of introspection where he he was trying to get inside of his own head you know i, I think he was a you know like you said a a, a professor and a um 
psychologist where he was he was definitely interested in the things of the mind um and uh you know this is this is just definitely one of those songs where you know it it is it, just trippy and you know kind of represented that that whole era you know but uh yeah let's like you said let's just listen to it okay so this is come together by the beatles <laughs> just heard come together by the Beatles and we're going to move on to uh, one of my favorite Beatles songs I think one of yours too here comes oh, the yeah. sun George Harrison's here comes the sun um, and you know this album I mean uh, before I talk about here comes the sun specifically you know this album they were really you know I think they all knew this was their last statement together as the Beatles and uh, I think they were looking for a way to wrap things up. And during on the second side of this album, or what would have been the second side, um, is this huge medley of songs that were essentially, you know, fragments of songs, half-finished songs, from uh, mostly from earlier recording sessions, from the White Album recording sessions, from the Let It Be recording sessions. And they just sort of cobbled it all together in this big final medley it's almost like saying well you know okay how are we going to use all this stuff because there aren't going to be any more Beatles albums really mm-hmm. um, and I just thought it was really interesting that um, at the very end of this uh, you know long medley um, which is called the end <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, which is you know really uh you know, kind of apt, you know, it's called the end and um, we get solos from every, I just thought this was kind of, 
I don't know, significant in some way, you know, because we have all these people, uh, all of them going off in their own uh, directions. And during this song, The End, which is the end of this medley week, everybody has their own solo. So we have uh, Ringo Starr's only drum solo in the entire Beatles catalog. Which is amazing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Really cool solo. And then we have this series of guitar solos by all three. So we have... um, uh, you know, 12 bars of these um, guitar solos, uh, you know, the two bars will be played by McCartney, then the, then the next two bars will be Harrison, and then the next two bars will be Lennon, and it sort of goes like that. That's the sequence. And so we get to hear this guitar soloing style of all three of these guys, you know, which I thought was really interesting to listen to, you know, to you get to yeah. hear all their individual voices, you know, really, um, in this this final statement um and then of course that song ends with the the line um and in the end the love you take is equal to the love you make right yeah um which i thought was a great way to go out you know yeah um yeah agreed agreed totally agreed um this this album too uh, going back to what we kind of were talking about with the first two it's tough it's it's tough to pick from this album just a couple of songs not as hard but um, so much on this album. Uh, she's so heavy, and um, you know, just a, a a list of songs that they, you know, they just become part of you. I mean, if you listen to the Beatles at all, I mean, you know, on and off, you know, uh, there, there's so much you could say. Okay, something, you know, that song in itself. We were kind of talking about the whole thing with with Eric Clapton and 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 George. You know, apparently, you know, that song is is George thinking of of Eric's, I guess, at the time, uh, wife, um, from what I understand. Um, that song is about her. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't know that for a long time. And, and I guess well, George eventually wooed her away from from Eric, um, which, you know, kind of had him. You know, write some other songs. Like I think you said, Layla, uh, yeah, was was a tune. You know that, you know he he was you know obviously you know not not very happy about you know how that went down. And and I guess you know they you know when I I don't know. I, obviously, they were very good friends. You know, but um, sometimes when you you you're close, you know you you have certain things happen, and, and I I don't know. I mean. I'm sure, you know, eventually, you know, they, they, they worked it out, you know, <laughs> somehow or another, yeah, you yeah. know, um, but anyway, um, uh, going back to, uh, here comes the sun, um, uh, is, it's, 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 it's a simple song and it starts off pretty simple, but as the song goes on, you, you hear all kinds of things here and there, like little subtle things that get added as the song builds on towards the end. And it, it, it's one of those songs to me that, that that's helped me personally in a lot of ways where you, you, you have a, a situation that's, that's negative or, or something that you're going through and, and, and you have to think of, of things in life like that as seasonal. You know, and in in the lyrics, you know, he he, you know, he's saying, "Little darling, it's been a long, cold, lonely winter," you know, and uh, 
you know, little darling, it, it, it feels like years since it's been here. And, and, and that's what it's like, you know, coming through, you know, the cold and the bitter and, and then springs right around the corner and all that melts away. And, you know, it, to me, it's all symbolic of that in life where you, you, you go through, tr- you know, trials and tough times and, and, and the, the sun eventually always comes out. You know, I mean, as, as simple as that is a concept when you get older, you know, and, and you go through some serious trials, you know, it, it's good to be able to relate to a song like this. I think that's one of the things about this song and, and the simplest way to put it that I that I love, you know. Yeah. Um, away from the all the things that are going on in the actual music. You know, I mean, it, it's just a, a great song, a, you know, that that it's all right, you know, that that he refrains throughout the song. I mean. You know, it, it just really helps, you know, sometimes, you know, I mean, for me, it's helped. I, I'll definitely say that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's just it's a beautiful song full of such positive energy. And it's really cool to hear a song like this uh, when you know that that, you know, they all know that this whole Beatles thing is coming to an end. You know, it could have been they could have ended on a, a sour note and had songs that were a lot more. uh I don't know, biting and angry and or whatever, but oh, know, yeah. this is just so full of optimism and and I, you know it's got that um, that George Harrison kind of feeling, which is I don't know, like this quiet reverence for something bigger or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know, it's just a a great song, great beautiful song. So yeah, and I, I totally agree with you what what you're saying about George. He he like I said he had such a great spirit about him. I I love that. I mean he he could be so respectful of of his position in the universe, so to speak. I think that's that's where I'm trying to go. I mean, um, no matter what your belief, you know how your position was. I mean, you know how you felt about you know there being a, a higher power, or God, or whether you didn't believe in any of that. You know, George was all right with with where you were and where he was you know and and he just wanted to have some peace and i i just i i, I just love that about his persona you know and, and again it, it came across in his music so very often um but anyway uh let's uh let's go ahead and listen to this song yeah. I, I i just really love this song a lot um uh this is the beatles with here comes the sun
And you just heard uh, Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. And uh, the next artist I believe we're going to listen to, an artist that I, had, I was not very familiar with at all, or, or group, I should say, uh, Bo Brommel's. Um, yeah, which were uh, I guess like a sort of like a mod group in the, the '60s. Um, definitely seemed to have been influenced by by groups like the Beatles and maybe the Who very early on, and and then kind of went uh, more psychedelic as the, the '60s went on. And um, I I I believe reading about them. They had early on been kind of produced by uh, uh, Sylvester Stewart from from Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah, uh, which I, you know that that was that was kind of surprising to me. Not not you know that Sly couldn't do it or 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 anything like that. Just I, I didn't hear his his influence per se in their music. I guess is what I was what I was thinking. Um, but uh, what what do you think about uh, Bo Brommel's? Uh, this is probably the, uh, the, the band, the, the hardest band we've come across for me to get my head around. Um, I'm just not into it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's fair. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, we, you know, we're going to start out with this song called magic hollow and, um, you know, I will, you know, there, I think there are some, some some good things about this song but overall i mean i have to be honest you know it almost sounds like a parody to me like a parody from like a song that would have been in, in that animated hobbit movie or something you know <laughs> yeah you know um it definitely has like, some mysticism uh, about it yeah yeah or like you know like like that horrible late 60s video of leonard nimoy singing the ballad of bilbo baggins oh, or something uh, you know? yeah you know um it, it, it just I just get that kind of vibe out of it. Um, incidentally, um, this band, the Bo Brummels, um, they were on the Flintstones. <laughs> really? They were, you know, every once in a while in those cartoons in the 60s, they would have these bands on, you know, and they'd be all animated and stuff. Yeah, yeah I remember Ann-Margaret Ann being on there and all these other different people. But yeah. the Bo Brummels were on Flintstones. The Bo okay. Brummels were on the Flintstones, and they were called the Bo Brummel Stones. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> um, yeah, and but anyway, um, yeah, the the song "Magic Hollow." Um, you know, I mean, I, I I really like the combination of instruments that that, that are on this um, track. You know, the the sound that they get, all these kind of acoustic guitars, and and really, the, it sounds great. I mean, I think the production is great for the time. The acoustic guitars are really kind of silvery bell-like sound there's this harpsichord on it there's strings there's even a cello solo in the middle of the song which you know i thought that was kind of cool having a solo for the cello um but overall it does have this you know to me this this feeling of uh you know of like it should be in the animated hobbit thing or it's like a parody of that or something um i don't know what, what did you think of magic hollow uh just it just has a, a very mystical almost hippie like feel to it yeah, yeah. um and and again you know to to touch on the beatles again i, I think they they influenced so many groups and, and and the way that that people sounded but in in a sense a lot of times you know people weren't gonna be able to to do exactly what they did 
but but may take a look or or a feel and then kind of go in a whole nother direction, which I, I, I would almost say the Bo Burmals were definitely influenced somewhat by the Beatles. But I, I think they yeah. were they were kind of going in another direction where they uh, they were they were trying to to just go in a in a in a mystical almost like not really prog rock but 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 groups like that that were that would come on later I guess like Marillion and, and Hawkwind and you know that that would right. kind of make music about a certain era or a certain age like you said like you were watching you know a, a, a Hobbit movie and uh, you know would would sing about you know. You know, Middle Earth and, and and have flutes and you know that that's that seems to be the 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 spin with them and um, reading about that that actual name Bo Brummel. Apparently, um, there was a George Brian Brummel who who went by Bro, Bo Brummel in the eighteen hundreds, who was like a for lack of a better way of saying it, a fashion designer. Um, and uh designed you know clothes mainly for men and uh i i'm assuming that's where they got that name from uh trying to to find the association yeah, but yeah. uh maybe it was just a, a call back to that age of of when bo brummel was you know you know in style so to speak and um you know designed yeah, yeah. clothes for you know the british royalty and anyway um, yeah, and I mean, I, you know, I don't mean to offend anybody out there who who are fans of Bo Brummel's. I can just, I can only come at this from from my own experience, and really, it's it's impossible for me to to put myself in the period where when this was released. Um, and and you know, unlike the Beatles music, which I I really feel like the Beatles music is really timeless. This music is such of its time. Um, I almost feel like it hasn't really held up very well because it is so much of its time that if you're if you weren't part of that time like like me and you go back and hear it you know I'm just it's it's very difficult for me to I don't know to to be into this as it as it would have been heard when it was released if that makes sense Um, yeah Uh, I and reading reading about them too I think that you know they were they were kind of like a project you know for for a record label who they wanted to have something that that was kind of like an an answer to the so-called british invasion a, a lot of the groups that were that were coming on in that time you know um you know what do we do i mean we we want to sell records and we have all these british groups that are coming out you know that are just they're just killing us and you know they they basically took, you know, a, a group that that looked British and, and and sounded British, but was was based you know here in America, and and I mean that that could be an issue with them too, where you know they they were just it was like an a simple thing, but but still went on to kind of mature and and go beyond what they were originally planned for, because again like uh, when they first started, I mean they they just look like you know like a photocopy of another band but i think as as time went on they got much better than that you know in in their sound and in the content of what they were trying to do and i i think when when you listen to them more because i know as i started listening to more of their music 
I, I gained a lot more respect for what what they were. Because initially, I, I like you, I was like, I'm not digging this at all, you know. Um, but I, I think they're just kind of one of those groups. If you listen to to some of their music more, it, it begins to get better, especially the the playing it on, on farther into their career sounded a lot better than yeah. what it did when they first started. I mean, when they first started, it was it was it was real simple. They they weren't they weren't trying to to break through anything. It it seemed like and that that's not a, an insult to them. I mean, you know, they you know, they they were just they were out there like a lot of bands, you know, this is this let's just get our foot in the door, you yeah, know, so yeah, to yeah. speak. So anyway. Yeah, well let's let's just roll this first track. Um this is Magic Hollow by the Bo Brummels. Blessed, you have not guessed, so won't you follow? For through the dark, I hear the lark of magic hollow calling out a melody veiled within my memory. Magic Hey, yeah Magic And we just heard Magic Hollow by the Bo Brummels And I, I need to mention, I forgot to mention this um, We're talking about their album Triangle Released in 1967 Oh yeah um, So really, yeah, the, just during the same time As what we were talking about with the Beatles This is just really released during that same time and um the the next track we're going to talk about is nine pound hammer and i like this one uh, more than magic hollow it to me this this has you know uh bo brummels were from the bay area in san francisco and um to me this song nine pound hammer kind of has a it's like a proto height ashbury sound yeah. Um, that, you know, later, you know, Janis Joplin or the Grateful Dead or any of these bands that came out of that scene a little bit later, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. This kind of has that, that proto Hyde Ashbury sound to me. I don't know. What did you think of this? Yeah, definitely. Definitely kind of folk rock. You know, just, you know, John Henry was a, you know, this, that or the other. I mean, that that's what I hear when I hear this, you know, and um you know, it, it definitely reflects the the period that they were in. Um, and I mean, as far as how the the times have changed, you know, it, it hasn't really aged all that well. But I mean, to look back at at what they were trying to do for that period, it it was it was really good. I mean, again, going back to the the folk sound. I mean, I imagine you know, like you the groups you mentioned, and maybe like Peter Paul and Mary, and you know, groups like that. You know doing songs like this where they would take you know you know folk songs and and um maybe 
add more of a rock spin to them or, or even a pop spin to them at times. And, um, you know, it was it was the 60s. You know, we we for the most part, you know, were not born yet. I, I was born in the late 60s, um, but I still was not <laughs> not able to yeah. to be around when yeah. when this was going on. But but anyway, um, you know, I, I think that. They probably had so many, you know, contemporaries that were a lot like them, you know, that that made music like this. And then eventually, you know, as as the times change, you know, they they either were, were going to kind of change with the times or, or, or stay with what they had. And that it seems like they they probably stayed with what they had and, and, and you know, eventually kind of faded off the map, which. You know, I, I really did not know much about them at all. I, I don't I don't think I knew anything about them at all until I read this book. And, um, you know, it, it's it's interesting to go back into their their history and and, and kind of see the the kind of psychedelic and, and country things that they were doing. And also, too, like I said, I, it, it totally fascinates me that 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 Sly Stone worked with them earlier. You know, I, I definitely want to read more about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and see what what that was like, you know. But anyway, yeah. Well, let's check it out. This um, final track from the Bo Brum- <laughs> the 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 the, the <laughs> Bo Brummel's album Triangle. Um, this is uh, Nine Pound Hammer. <laughs> this Nine Pound Hammer is a little too heavy. For my size Hey, for my size I'm going on the mountain Going up there to see my baby I don't think I'll be back No, not coming back this way Hey, roll on, buddy Don't you go Can I roll? My wheels, they don't roll. I roll on, buddy. Pull the load of gold. Ah, how can I roll? My wheels, they won't roll. Now it's a long way to Hartnum, and it's a long way to Hazard. Just to get a little groove, yeah. Just to get a little groove. Hey, when I die, I want my tombstone made of number nine coal, yeah. Make it a number nine coal. Hey, roll on, buddy. Now don't you roll. And we just heard Nine Pound Hammer by the Bo Brummels. And we're going to move on to our last album for this show, uh, Sidney Bechet. And this is the uh, from the um, 
I guess were released in conjunction with Ken Burns documentary uh, simply called Jazz, which I've mentioned several times on the show um, that you all should go out and watch because it's an awesome documentary. Um, Even if, you know, you think you don't like jazz, if you just if you like music, you know, especially if you like American pop music, you should watch this documentary. It's a it's a fantastic documentary and we would not have you know, pop music without the development of jazz. Pop music would yeah. not exist. So if you're interested in pop music and, and really the origins of pop music, you know, watch this documentary. It's, it's fantastic. So anyway, um, but yeah, this was released as part of that documentary. And Sidney Bechet was one of the originators, really, one of the original players of jazz, um, born in New Orleans in uh, the 1890s, and uh, started on clarinet and eventually, you know, when he was overseas, discovered the straight soprano saxophone, uh, later uh, ruined by Kenny G. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I know, man, slap. Um, So, uh, yeah, um, he, he, he discovered this, you know, soprano saxophone, switched to it and was really the, the first famous jazz saxophone player that there was um and he was also a really uh storied character um you know it got arrested several times for assaulting people um basically got kicked out of france for being involved in a gunfight um apparently spurred on by a record producer that criticized his sound Mm. Um, and, uh, apparently, you know, some innocent bystander was injured, you know, from the gunfire and all this stuff. And, wow. uh, yeah, I mean, this guy was, um, was a character. Um, and, uh, yeah. what do you think of a Sidney Bechet? Uh, not really recognizing his position in jazz before I, I read about him in this book now and, and how influential he was. It, it, it was so early on in jazz that I think that he really does not get the just due uh, that's deserved him. Um, and, and as much as, as people, you know, talk about his, his saxophone playing, I mean, I've never heard anybody play clarinet like him. I mean, just an amazing, amazing yeah, clarinet yeah. player. I just, I, that's the one thing about him that I, I recognize that before his his playing on anything else is his clarinet playing. It, it, it's brilliant. I love it. And um, you know, his his early work with, you know, Satchmo and Louis Armstrong as one of his contemporaries, um, you know, I I think that may be one of the things too that I mean, outside of his other things that, you know, that he was doing that get him in trouble, may kind of cast a shadow on his career because I mean most people think of, of Louis Armstrong as as you know the ambassador of jazz or the the, the, the one of the, the giants of jazz when you first think of jazz music you know certain things or certain people that come to mind you know I mean Sidney Bechet is not the first thing that that comes to my mind you know usually but you know and, and, and it's just you know again I I listen to his music now, you know, I revere him a lot more. I mean, put him on a level with Satchmo, you know, definitely. I mean, just an amazing player. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, and one of the reasons I think that he's not known very well over here is that he spent most of his career in Europe. Mm. And um, he spent you know a lot of time in uh, England and and then really most of his life and most of his later life in France, where really in France, you know, he was treated like royalty almost um, yeah. when he was over there and he, he was, you know, paid really well. People loved him over there that, you know, the French loved jazz. And, um, you know, I think it was a, you know, why leave? Why leave that, you know? It was, yeah. a, it was a, a good gig, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> constantly being revered and paid well, you know, so I'm sure everybody would want that. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, the, the, he, like you said, Mitch, you know, he had this really, uh, I don't know, c- kind of unique way of playing the clarinet and the saxophone, both um, that really nobody else had. And uh you know, he was born in New Orleans. He was of Creole origin. And uh, he just came out of that scene in New Orleans that that really invented jazz and developed jazz. And, you know, you could really almost say that all popular music stems from this period, from this place. Yeah. You know? um, and, and, you know, he was one of the originators. So, I mean, this guy is, you know. Uh, really important in the in the history of of our music today um so we're going to start with this piece uh characteristic blues um what do you think of this one um really uh the thing about this track that stands out to me uh is the uh not only the playing but the there's a vocal on this track it's it's kind of like a, a, vibra- a vibrato type growl, if you will. Um, and I, I, we were kind of talking about this earlier yeah. as, as the question of who who is this on the vocal? I, and I'm not really sure yet. Uh, I'm, I'm still trying to find that out. It, 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 may, be, uh, it may be Louis Armstrong because he, he is working on this particular release, the initial release of, of, of the album that this song was on. Yeah. Um, but I, it, to me, it does not sound like him right away unless, like you, we were saying, the pitch of the song is different as far as the way they recorded it. Um, yeah. I mean, my contention is that this is Louis Armstrong singing because uh, and it, uh, obviously this is a really, really early recording of Louis Armstrong. Yeah. This is from, um, you know, probably the 1920s before Louis Armstrong uh went out on his own. So uh, at this time, Louis Armstrong was just one of the dudes that was playing with Sidney Bechet and, and his band. And mm. um, my contention is that, you know, who else sang like Louis Armstrong, especially this early? Yeah, you know? not, not, probably not too many people. So yeah, I, 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 yeah. that's what I was thinking. It, you, you're, you're probably right. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't sound like him, but again, then again, it was ages ago, you know? Yeah, and, and again, you said, you know, it, it really doesn't, there's something off about the voice that makes you say, well, you know, is that Louis Armstrong? But um, as is with common with uh, recordings this old, um, that sometimes the um, the recording speed was not always like totally right. So on, on a lot of times on these old recordings, you'll get recordings that are like sped up or uh, sped up slightly or slowed down slightly. And so it throws the pitch off. 
Yeah. Um, so the voice on this, you know, is a little high. It sounds a little high for, for Louis Armstrong, but I still, I think it is Louis Armstrong, but I, you know, I could be wrong. Hey, someone out there that knows, but, um, that's, that's my guess is that it is Louis Armstrong. Yeah. Well, either way, the, the, the vocal on this song, it, it, it kind of gives it like a, a, a sultry type feel, you know, and, and, and definitely the, the playing, uh, from from Bechet, I mean, you know, I I just see this, you, you know, vision of like a a small club or a cabaret or whatever, and maybe a you know a lady on the stage with some really big feathers dancing around. <laughs> yeah, you know that. Whenever I hear this, that I mean, that's the the thing that comes to my mind. You know, yeah. like the you know I, I don't know if you ever seen the uh, the Cotton Club movie. There's some some uh uh almost burlesque type scenes yeah, in yeah. that movie with, with uh, the dancers and, uh, but that, that's kind of what, what I think of when I hear this song, it, it, it just has a, a nice, you know, slow Southern mood, you know, which, uh, yeah. you know, is, is I'm probably, you know, typical with a lot of his music. Uh, yeah. Well, I can hear this, you know, like a Chicago speakeasy, with a bunch of gangsters, you know, in the, and I think this was recorded during prohibition. And I think I could be wrong. But I, I think that Boucher during this period was in Chicago. Uh, okay. Um, so, you know, yeah, this could very well have been played in a Chicago speakeasy for a bunch of gangsters that were working for Al Capone or whatever. Um, yeah. 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 So yeah, cool. man. Let, let's check it out. This is uh, Characteristic Blues by Sidney Bechet. And we just heard Characteristic Blues by Sidney Bechet. And we're going to move on to his track, Shag. So what did you think of Shag? Um, the, the first thing that I heard, well, what I thought of when I heard this song is you, you always hear people, you know, from time to time hear about music that swings, you know. And I, I think that's a, a term that, that that gets used out of term, so to speak. But this this song is a song to me that, it, it literally swings, so to speak, as far as jazz singers or jazz players swing. I mean, it it just has this like great, you know, rhythm about it and, and great arrangement and and, and the, the interplay between the musicians. I mean, it, you know, that is as simple as I can put it. This this song, it just it has a great swing to it. You know? Yeah. 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 And I think this showcases Bechet's, um playing. You know really well his his tone his 
the way he played the instrument was just so unique. You know, no, I don't think uh, anybody else sounded like him. And he's no. really just blowing on this track, you know? Yeah, agreed, agreed. And it, it I, I think it, it was, for what it was, was, was probably like a, a landmark type recording where it was, it was a, a pretty big hit from what I, I'm reading and, and, and trying to figure out on I me mean, because I guess it was, it was what, 1932 when, when this was recorded and released. And, um, you know, it was just automatically just a hit nationwide or worldwide even. And, um, trying to figure out also to reading, reading about, uh, the vocalist that sat in with Bechet, uh, uh, Noble Sissel. Cause I, originally when we, we, we were talking about the first song. I thought that was maybe who did the vocal on that one song, but that that's somebody who I'm, I'm trying to read about now uh, that uh, sat in with him on, on vocals on, on so many of these tracks that, okay. that made them, you know, kind of what they were anyway. Um, great song, you know, great example of how well, you know, he was with, you know, playing a, a variety of instruments and uh, just very talented you know, although obviously at times seemingly somewhat uh, moody, and, and apparently he was a really big guy too. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, big just, guy, tall guy, um, kind of an imposing character. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what I I get that too. Where he you know, he would just come in a place and they're like, "Holy cow!" You know, <laughs> um, just a just a big dude. You know, kind of you know would 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 have you know different streaks of, of, of hot and cold and, you know, but, but just a, a great musician, you know, and, um, you know, this, this song is just a, a, a great example of, of what he was all about. And, and I, again, I love the sound of the way, the will, the way he played clarinet you just, you don't hear a lot of, of clarinet soloists or players, not, not much. I mean, you hear some, but, you know, when you have somebody that that knows how to play that instrument well, I mean, it's it's to me, it's very special. Oh, definitely. So yeah, let's check it out. This final track for this uh, this, this kind of marathon episode, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, "Shag" by Sidney Bechet. <laughs> Marijuana is little, 
We just heard Shag by Sidney Bechet, and that is going to do it for the 1000 Recordings Podcast, episode number 15. Wow. If you'd, if you'd, I know, 15, man. It's awesome. 15. So if you'd like to send us an email, um, please do so uh, at uh, 1000recordingspodcast at gmail.com. And you know what? I have an email here to read. Cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, let me just, uh, I'm really, um, not prepared because I didn't have it up. (laughs) (laughs) So as I, uh, sign into our um, email to uh, read it, uh, yeah, we got an email from, uh, from, uh, Mike Mish and, uh, he, uh, he says that, um, oh, let's see. Uh, well, he says that I, I love you're doing a 1000 recordings podcast. I'm just listening to the first one now. Uh, saw the link on Tom Moon's site. I started reading the book, wow, maybe almost two years ago now. Um, I am 500 albums in. He said, already had about 100 down and now going alphabetically at M. And it's been an amazing experience to hear the new stuff. He says, my favorite finds so far are Blind Faith. Baby Huey and the Babysitters and Hun Hoor too. So that's cool. We, we've we've covered Baby Huey and the Babysitters, but not the other two yet. Yeah. But that's actually one of my favorite finds was Baby Huey and the Babysitters so far. I I, I really liked that album a lot. Yeah, it was um, good. And and you know I discovered that uh, newer version um, from John Legend and the Roots, which I think is just awesome mm-hmm. version. But anyway. Um, and uh, apparently he has been doing a blog uh, about the 1000 Recordings book. Um, and, uh, you know, I took a look at the blog and he says that um, he was doing it for um, about a year and then stopped doing it because he felt like no one was reading it. Uh, and then he was apparently inspired by our, our podcast to start doing the blog again which I think is awesome. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I uh, um, encourage all the listeners out there to go and, uh, and uh, support Mike and his blog. His blog URL is recordingtherecordings.blogspot.com. So that's all recording the recordings is like all one word. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, go and check out his blog and subscribe to it. And uh, yeah, and we thank Mike for his email. So. Thank you, thank you, Mike. Uh, that was that was really nice. Or appreciate it. Glad glad you're inspired to keep doing what you do. Um, 
and and you inspire us by the way i mean if you didn't know that so <laughs> yeah yeah so definitely so um yeah if you'd like to send us an email send us uh an email to one one thousand recordings podcast at gmail.com you can look at our website at with that one thousand rp.blogspot.com you can join us on twitter at twitter.com slash one thousand rp and you can join us on facebook and uh so next week what do we got coming up next week uh next week we have an album from beck and lots of beethoven uh tons oh, of beethoven. that's right we've got it yeah we've got a ton of beethoven coming up don't we yeah yeah lots and lots of beethoven i mean beethoven i mean the only other person i mean well classical music wise that uh that comes to mind right away i mean is mozart but beethoven is a biggie obviously i mean just you know you know the classical god if you will yeah yeah, and I mean so, Tom Moon definitely didn't skimp on the Beethoven. No, we're gonna have Beethoven. a lot. I mean, you know, one of these I was looking at, which I'm not sure it's gonna be next week or the week after, because the 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 Beethoven's gonna span like two episodes. Um, oh yeah, and um, I think it's gonna be on the one, um, the second episode, but it's gonna be another situation like the White Album where he has this collection. So one album literally, this is in quotes is his or all his symphonies, symphonies one through nine. Mm. So it's like, how know, do you start? <laughs> yeah. How do we pick two, you know, minute and a half excerpts from all of his symphonies? But anyway, um, yeah, we're going to have, um, but I'm, I'm looking forward really to getting into the Beck album. Um, yeah. And it, it's, it's a Beck album that is not, my particular favorite but it is a good one and um well interesting because it's a beck album that i don't know so yeah yeah I mean, it's, you know it, again it's it's just one of those things he's one of those guys that um uh like kind of like the bc boys you know went through a period of, of huge transition he, and and along with the dust brothers too where they they produced a a couple of his records that i mean they were just incredible records but um he's not willing to allow himself to be pigeonholed beck sometimes is is very electronic you know sounding sometimes he relies heavily on samples and and kind of hip-hop you know influence and then sometimes it's just him and a guitar and a cowboy hat so you know right um He's just one of those guys that he's he does a lot of different things, you know. But I, I'm definitely looking forward to talking about that one, too. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, so next time we're going to get into Beck and Beethoven. And uh, until that time, um, yeah, I want to wish everybody and, of course, you, Mitch, and your family uh, an awesome Christmas and a happy new year. And yep. uh, Yeah, and uh, yeah, we'll see everybody later. Yeah. Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, happy holidays, everybody. Uh, Merry Christmas to you, Tony, and your family. Uh, it's been fun. Uh, I guess we got one more to do before the end of the year. Um, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. All right, man. Later. All right. Bye bye. Shire lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire with his long wooden pipe 
fuzzy woolly toes. He lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. It's a peace-loving folks, you know. They're never in a hurry and they take things slow. They don't like to travel away from home. They just like to eat and be left alone. But one day Bilbo was asked to go on a big adventure to the caves below to help some dwarves get back their gold that was stolen by a dragon in the days of old Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins, only three feet tall. Bravest little hobbit of them all. Well, he fought with the goblins. He battled a troll. He riddled with Gollum. A magic ring he stole. He was chased by wolves, lost in the forest, escaped in a barrel from the elf king's halls. Bilbo, Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all.